I think the best place to start, look at 2 Timothy 2.15. I don't know if anyone in this church knows this verse. Okay, you kids, let's try this. How many of you kids know 2 Timothy 2.15? Andy is so disappointed back there. All right. I know you kids know it. You ready? Let's all say it together. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, that is our Awana verse, right? All right. So um, it's interesting. There are a couple of things from this verse that I want us to look at. First of all, it's a command to study. Now, I will say this, if you have a modern translation of the Bible, this command is completely different. It's, it's removed from your Bible. It's completely changed. But it says to study. The way that we're to know God's word is we're to study it. And then the way that we are to study it is as a workman. It's as a workman. Um, at one point, Doug Schmidtmeyer had a job moving engine blocks. And so when I would travel and I would talk to preachers, I'd get to speak to preachers, I talked about... Um, the Bible says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they that labor in the word and in doctrine. And so I asked them, how does your labor in the word compare to my church member friend who moves engine blocks? They're both supposed to be labor. And that's different than going to an outline book and taking someone else's outline and trying to make it work or going to the internet and pulling something off of the internet. We're to be studying the word of God as pastors. The rest of us notice that we, we are to study it. The goal or the way that we study it as a workman with a goal of not being ashamed. We want to please God. So we study his word because we want to please him. So now let me show you, and we're going to get into the rightly dividing and all of that. That's going to be part of this, but not tonight. Look at Proverbs chapter 22. I'm so glad you all are here. It's going to be such a fun study. And tonight, this is not going to be a masterpiece of homiletical skill. This is just some random thoughts that we need to have in our heads um, to, before we can dive into this study. So Proverbs chapter 22, and look at verse 21. That I might make thee know the certainty of words of the words of truth, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee. It's really important that we understand the certainty of the words of God. The certainty of the words of God. Look at Proverbs 4 4. If you look at verse 1, Proverbs 4 and verse 1, Hear ye, children, the instruction of a father, Proverbs 4, 1, and attend to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. For I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. Now notice what it says. This is what a father does. He taught me also and said unto me, Let thine heart retain my, what's, what does it say right there? Words, word or words, words, keep 
my commandments and live. Notice the association between words and commandments, words and commandments. And we'll see that when we get to the Psalm 119, it says, I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. Psalm 119, 47. So his word and his commandments, those are the same thing. Go to John chapter 14. John 14, look at verse 15. If ye love me, keep my commandments. If ye love me, keep my commandments. Verse 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. So the foundation of Bible study... There's two things that you have to do. Number one, you have to believe God's words. And number two, you have to love God's words. Those are the keys to understanding the Bible, to studying the Bible, believing and loving, believing and loving. And that's the way that God reveals himself. So when we begin studying the Bible, it must be our soul, our only authority. It has to be. Um, One of the... One of the cries of the Reformation was the, was sola scriptura, scripture alone. And our Calvinist friends love to talk about the sufficiency of scripture, the sufficiency of scripture, the sufficiency of scripture. Um, now, one of the problems is they actually, they don't really believe that because any place where Augustine or Calvin disagree with the scripture, they go ahead and follow Augustine or Calvin. So what does that mean? In their system, the scripture is not sufficient. They have to have something else for their system. So if you're taking notes, the, the primary thing that we have to, the primary idea that we have to get in our minds is in order to study God's word and for God to open his word to us, we have to believe it. We have to believe it. Now, when we talk about the sufficiency of scripture, the sufficiency of scripture. Look with me at Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us, what's that next word? All things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So when we believe this in the sufficiency of scripture, what we mean by that is it's all we need. Okay, young people look up here. I want you to get this. When we talk about the sufficiency of scripture, what we mean is that this is all we need. We, there is no external source of authority that we need. This is it. This is it. And I want to give you, an, I want to make a statement that's really important. If there is no authority, there can be no sufficiency. 
if there's no authority, there can be no sufficiency. I say this here all the time. I'm not the authority at Grace Baptist Church. Laura, no, no, different. I'm not the authority at Grace Baptist Church. The Bible is. Where I agree with the Bible, that's authoritative. Where I disagree, if I say something that does not agree with the Bible, don't listen to me. Listen to the Bible. The Bible is our authority. And we understand that in church life. How many would you agree? How many of you agree that we understand that in church life? But do we understand that in the area of Bible study? You see, one of the first things that people do when it comes to studying the Bible, they, they get to a passage and they don't understand a passage. So they're going to go and find out what their favorite Bible teacher says about that passage. Now, how many of you are thankful God has given the church teachers? But is that the way that we should be studying the Bible? Because what if that guy's wrong? What if he's wrong? Is he authoritative or is the word of God authoritative? So as we're beginning this study, remember, there can be no sufficiency if there's no authority. Um, now, So if the Bible, oh, they got a graphic up. I like that. Isn't that cool? Do we have all of them? Do we have all of those graphics or just this one? I'm, put, I'm putting Michael on the spot. So glorifying God by loving his word. So that's, that's our graphic for, for the website and all for Psalm 119. And then you can show the other one. Glorifying God by studying his word. See how the arrow goes down? We're going deep. It goes this way for loving his word. And then the theme for the church is glorifying God by exalting his word. And the arrow goes up because it's our priority. Uh, Pastor Nathan designed all that for us. And that's, that's, what happened was I gave him some ideas, get, told him what I wanted. And he sent me this as his first idea. And I said, you're done. That's it. I just, I love it. But glorifying God by studying his word. We want to get deep. We want to dig into God's word and understand it. And the only way that we can really understand it is if we begin studying it as our authority, believing every word of it and that it is our authority. Now, when we say, when we talk about biblical authority and biblical sufficiency, what we mean is that we need no external sources to understand our Bible. So uh, I wrote this down. Beware of external sources of authority. And let me list some of the external sources of authority. So if you've gone to a Bible college, you've studied in a seminary, um, you study, you, you, you've learned under someone who is trained that way, here's where the problem comes in. These are external sources of authority. Confessions. Now, is there anything wrong? Now, what do I mean by a confession? I know that you, the Augsburg Confession, there's the, that's the Lutheran. There are different confessions. Is there anything wrong with those? No. Not a thing in the world wrong with them. They're just not authoritative. They're the words of man. All right? And then creeds. Creeds. You know, you have the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed. And when you read those creeds, many times things are worded very well, but some of the creeds disagree with the Bible. So if a creed disagrees with the Bible, what, what is your authority then? The Bible. The Bible. And I'm just telling you, man, you want to freak somebody out. Well, you, you talk to one of these people that are creedalists, 
and you start questioning their creed, you could rip a page out of the Bible and they wouldn't care. You could throw a Bible across the, the, the room and they wouldn't care. You mess with their creed and now they're going to burn you at the stake. Why? Because that's their authority. That's their authority. So as we begin our understanding of how to study the Bible, we must understand that it is our authority and we need to be aware of external sources of authority such as confessions, creeds. How about this? Lexicons and dictionaries. Lexicons and dictionaries. So a lexicon, so if you have a Greek lexicon, it's a Greek dictionary. That's um, a lexicographer is a person that writes one of those things. And so dictionaries and lexicons can be helpful. Can be helpful. But how many of you know that the, many words, let me put it this way, a word can have different definitions. It can mean different things. And I didn't bring any illustrations of that. If I concentrated on it, I could. But so, you know, you're going to eat meat or it might be meat for you to do this. There's different spellings, M-E-A-T, M-E-E-T. There's, there's different, or you can meet, or it is good, it is meat for you to do this. Those are two different definitions of the word meat. So words can have different definitions. You're not allowed, when it comes to Bible study, you're not allowed to choose which definition is right for that word. You're not allowed to go to the dictionary, and there's nine different uses of that word, and you're going to decide which of those uses applies to that text. What becomes the authority then? The dictionary and the person using the dictionary. So how do I know the definition of a word in the Bible? By comparing scripture with scripture. Allowing the Bible to define its own words. The way that the Bible uses that word, that is its definition. The context provides the definition for the word. So... External sources of authority, confessions, creeds, lexicons, and dictionaries, and then social constructs and philosophies. Social constructs and philosophies. The the one that jumps to my mind is love. How many of you think that we ought to allow the world to define that word love, a a worldly philosophy of love? Do you think that's going to be different than the Bible's understanding of love? It is completely different. And we see that all through our culture with something like homosexuality, that people ought to be able to love whoever they want to love. Well, we're all supposed to love each other. Know what the Bible says? We're all supposed to love each other. The mistake in that statement is they believe that homosexuality is about love. It has nothing to do with love. That's not what it's about. Not if we're talking about biblical love. So this is where we have to not allow external sources to define the Bible. We have one source of authority and we hold it in our hands. Beware of external sources of authority, confessions, creeds, lexicons, dictionaries, social constructs. And then something that we need to understand, and this is what we will get into, we're not going to do it today, is that with just a... If you will just learn a few principles, a few tools, you'll be able to study the Bible for yourself. You will be able to understand it for yourself. As I have the opportunity to preach around year after year after year, someone will come up to me after almost every meeting and ask me, how did you find that in the Bible? How did you put that together? How many of you, when you came to Grace Baptist, you'd never really been to a church where they compared scripture with scripture like we do? How many of you, that was a new thing for you? 
And so what happens is when we do that, people will ask, how do you do that? That's what you're going to learn to do. And many of you know already, but those are the principles of Bible study that we're going to get into. With just a few simple principles, you never have to be lost in Scripture. He wants to make it crystal clear for us. Um, So, if this is our authority, what do we do if we have different translations of the Bible that say different things? Now, we all know that. There are different translations of the Bible that say different things. Now, I didn't bring examples of that, but I I can give you one. Go to Acts chapter 8. Laura, hand me my phone. You know what? This one will be better. Go to 1 John chapter 5. All right, and we'll start reading in verse 6. Just follow along with me. This is he, he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. Is that different? What they've done is they've removed verse 7. This is the ESV. What they've done is they've removed verse 7, and they've divided up either verse 6 or verse 8, and made one of them verse 7. They just removed it because it's not found in the manuscripts that they like. And so what happens is now we have two different Bibles. First John 5, 7, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That's, that's the declarative statement on the Godhead. That's the declarative statement on the Trinity in the Bible. That's the clearest presentation of the Trinity in the Bible. Most modern Bibles do not have that verse in them. And if you're ever talking to a cultist that doesn't believe in the Trinity, whether it's a, a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, if you take them to that verse, they'll say, well, many Bibles don't have that verse in it. And so what would your answer be to that? Well, mine does. This is my authority. This is the authority. And we could go into many, I, we could spend a bunch of time showing you how that verse is supposed to be in your Bible. It was, so the manuscripts, they say that don't have it are um, Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, those, those manuscripts from the late 300s. Well, Tertullian, one of the church fathers, quoted it in 200 AD. How many of you know that 200 is before 325, right? Before 350, before 370. So it, it, it was being quoted early on, the Syriac lectionaries. Syriac is a language, Syrian, and in the 100s, They would have these pieces of scripture that they would read in churches 
And we have those Syriac lectionaries where 1 John 5, 7 is in those verses. Now, the numbering system didn't start until later, but the words, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. They're there. So this isn't just blind faith in a book. It's just believing that God can preserve his words. So now let's look at that. Go to Psalm chapter 12. This is the foundation for Bible study. A simple way to say it is you have to believe you have a Bible in order to study the Bible. All right, Psalm 12, look at verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So God has promised that his words are pure, and he has promised to preserve his words. How many of you see that verse? Is it clear? The words are pure, and God's going to preserve them from this generation forever. God has promised to preserve his words. Let me tell you what the ESV says right there. Follow along. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. So he's not guarding his words. He's going to keep his words, but he's not going to preserve them. It's such an interesting thing when you look at this, this view, this modern view of Scripture. When I stand up here and preach to you, when I teach to you from this book that I hold in my hands, I believe every word that's in it. I believe, I, I'm not going to look behind it to a dictionary or to a Greek lexicon or to a Greek text or to a Hebrew text or to an Aramaic text. I'm going to believe these words that I hold in my hands. I'm going to believe... Th- This is my authority. So I studied Greek. I I learned how to translate. I translated entire books of the Bible as a part of my training. And I mentioned this, it was either in Sunday school or Wednesday night. Do you know what I discovered? They'd already been translated. So why would I spend my study time retranslating them when it's already been done? by people much more qualified than I will ever be to make that translation. So one of the keys to Bible study is believing that you actually have God's words. Look at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4. We looked at this last week. All right, the Bible says, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Look at Luke chapter four and verse four.
And Jesus answered him, saying, this is he's answering Satan. And Jesus answered him, saying, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Now, here's the question. Jesus said you can't live unless you have every word of God. What if we don't have every word of God? I just believe that God has preserved his word. Now, logically, a question that may come up is, has everyone, since Jesus said that, had every word of God? And the answer is no. That's why Bible translation was such a profound issue. That's why it was such a significant issue. See, if you imagine if you lived during the time of the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the church at Philippi. If you didn't live at Philippi, you didn't have Philippians. Be careful for nothing. Like we saw this morning, they didn't have that. They didn't have that yet. The Bible hadn't yet been completed. Well, when the Bible was completed, it was written in the Old Testament in Hebrew. The book of Daniel is written in Aramaic, and there's a little bit of Aramaic scattered through a couple of other places. And then the New Testament was primarily written in Greek. Well, what if you were Hebrew and didn't read Greek? You couldn't understand the New Testament. So what had to happen? It had to be translated. Are you all following me on this? I mean, this, I know this sounds simple, but often people don't think through the process of how we got the Bible. You have inspiration. That's where God inspired the words. And then you have inscripturation, script, writing. That's when God had his men write it down. He inspired the words and then men wrote it down. And then who was responsible to preserve it? God was. And so the difference between our position and many others is that we actually believe in the doctrine of preservation, that God inspired his words, he had his men write those words down, and then he preserved them in such a way that we can read them today. That's what we believe. And that is a supernatural process. Did God use men to preserve his words? Yes. Yes. But could they have done it without his supernatural power? No. They couldn't. And so it's important to know that when Jesus said something... He had his men write it down exactly the way that he wanted it to. Look at, uh, he wanted them to. Look at John chapter 14. Oh, it's John chapter 16. Look at verse 13. Uh, Verse 12, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He will guide you into all truth. He will bring all things to your remembrance, it says. uh, I believe that's chapter 14. Anyway, Jesus Jesus says to his disciples that he will bring all things to their remembrance. So everything that Jesus said and everything that he did, he will supernaturally allow them to remember those things so they can write it down exactly the way that Jesus wanted. And then what did Jesus do? He preserved them so that we can read them today. He preserved them so that we can read them today in English. 
in English. I always like to say this. If you want to freak out a Greek scholar, tell him that God can read English. Now, here's the thing that will be thrown at you. If you talk to somebody who knows something about this subject, they'll say, then do you believe in dual inspiration, that God inspired the original authors of the Bible, the original writers, and he also inspired the King James translators? Is that what you're saying? Of course not. Never said that. He inspired the words. He used the men to write down his words. And then he used the King James translators to translate them accurately. See, here's what happens. And I just want to give you a couple of points to help you to trust your Bible. Just logically, let's, let's take God out of it. Is it possible to translate accurately from one language to another? That's the question. Is it possible to do that? In some cases, it's not. If the receptor language doesn't have enough words then it can't translate it. Sometimes you'll actually have to make up words in that language. Um, Some languages don't have the word lamb. Well, can you really have the Bible without the word lamb? Jesus Christ is the lamb of God. You know, you'd have to to create something that they know. Unless you were going to teach them what the word is and describe it to them the best way that you can, you're going to change it to dog, giraffe, zebra. What are you going to change it to that will carry the message of Scripture. How many of you see that that's a problem? And, and this is where multiculturalism has damaged us. Well, it's not fair. It's not fair that every language can't communicate the Scripture. And my answer would be, I ought to be 6'4". It's not fair that I'm 5'8". I ought to be taller. It's not fair. This is just the way that it is. If the Lamb of God cannot be communicated in a language, then what you have to do is you have to teach them what that is. You might actually have to write those words and create those words for that culture. Listen, let me ask you a question. Is that then a translation? No, it's a new word. It's a new language, technically a neologism, a new word. The receptor language must be capable of communicating the words of Scripture. In Papua New Guinea, they have a language. It's called pidgin. And these, these numbers are completely made up. What I'm about to say, it's completely made up. But it's, let's say that there are, I don't know, 100,000 words in the English language. There's like 20,000 words in pidgin. Now, those numbers are completely inaccurate, okay? But that gives you an understanding of the problem. So English has the capacity to communicate the words of Scripture. Pigeon does not. There's a pigeon translation of the Bible, but it's not all the words of God. How many of you are following what I'm saying here? And so we need to understand that God has blessed us. Mark Trotter, I talked to him, I guess it was a week ago Saturday, and he said this. Um... We happen to live in a country that speaks the words God preserved. Isn't that good? So, I told you this was going to be a little disjointed, but let me me just make this statement to help clear it up. God has preserved his word in the English language, and we can hold it in our hands. 
But he has not only preserved his, word, his words in the English language. We're not the only language that gets to have a Bible. That's not what we're saying at all. What we're saying is that of, of the languages where God has preserved his word, English is one of them. And we get to have that Bible and preach it and live it, believe it, and study it. It is our authority. Now, one of the issues, look at, uh, look at 1 Timothy. Sorry, it's 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 14. But continue thou in the things that thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the what? What are those two words? The holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So notice we have that word scriptures. Do you all see that word scriptures? Now, I know folks are tired. This is really important that you get this right here. How many of you have heard the word scripture before? Now, can you see that it's a Bible word? Really important. Just track with me on this. How many of you can see that scripture, and here specifically scriptures, is a Bible word? And so it's used all through Christian Christendom. It is a, it is a Bible word. Word, And if you look at the statement of faith of most Christian institutions that are considered to be conservative, they'll make this statement. We believe that the Bible was inspired, and this is their statement on the scripture, on the scriptures, that it was inspired in the, the scriptures were inspired in the original autographs. What is the original autographs? That's the, that piece of paper that was written on that God inspired the words there. Those don't exist anymore. See, here's something that most people don't know. Those original autographs, the original, the original copy of Genesis, the original copy of Exodus, the original copy of Matthew, the original copy of Revelation. Listen, those original copies have never been bound. They've, all of those copies, all of those, I'm sorry, not copies, all of those originals have never been in one place at one time, ever. Ever. Do you hear what I'm saying? What do we have? We have copies of copies and translations. So right here, notice what it says. And that from a child, verse 15, thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy was able to know the holy scriptures. Why? Because his mother and grandmother had taught him. So those holy scriptures, did he have the originals? No, he did not. What did he have? What did his grandmother have? What did his mother have? Copies of copies of copies. And the Bible calls those copies holy scripture. Am, am I making it up or is that what the Bible says? And here's what's interesting. They were probably translations. And they're called Holy Scriptures. So here's what happens in Christianity. This is what happens in Christian academia. They use biblical words, but not biblical definitions. So in their statement of faith, Scripture is the originals. But the copies can't be perfect. The copies can't be right. Only the originals can. 
that means God didn't preserve his words. You see? And so the, the biblical use of the word scripture is copies and translations. Why don't the institutions use that same word? So this is an example of how we have to use the Bible words, but also the biblical definition of those words. How about preservation? How has God chosen to preserve his words? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 14. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And it goes on to give us that message. But notice what it says here. Verse 15. The church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. What is the truth? John seventeen seventeen. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So God chose to preserve his word through the churches. Not, no, 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 look. Not the church. Not the Catholic church. The Catholic church corrupted the word of God because their, church, their, their doctrine did not agree with the Bible. So they changed the Bible to agree with their doctrine. God preserved his word in the churches. So here's what happened. <clears throat> Starting in 150, the Bible was translated into Old Latin. Starting in 157, the Bible was translated into Syriac. When the Syriac went to the east, the Latin went to the west. Those nations that used Greek, they kept reading it in the Greek. God translated it into those languages. And then they went everywhere preaching the gospel. And you can't be a Baptist. You can't be a biblical Christian without a Bible. So everywhere they went and planted churches, they made copies of the scriptures, copies of the scriptures. They were very careful in the way they copied those scriptures. And when it came time to produce a text, then let me, so let me define some words. An autograph is the original piece of paper that that was written on. A manuscript, a manuscript is something that is written out. So the original autograph, a manuscript is a copy of that. And then a codex is a book where they're bound together. All right, so manuscripts, codices, uh, and autographs. Those are the things that we're working with. Well, now we've got these different manuscripts all over. And this, you, you get a manuscript, and it's 800 years old, and it has most of the New Testament and some of the Old Testament. And then you find another one that has different parts of the Bible. And what happened was men like Desiderius Erasmus or Theodore Beza or Stephanus or others, they would compile these manuscripts and they would see where they agree, and they produced a text. So the first bound Greek text was in 1516 by Desiderius Erasmus. After that first printed Greek text became available, the Bible exploded all over the world, and people made translations from that Greek text. Where did that Greek text come from? By the time we come all the way to our King James Bible, which was completed in 1611, the original translation, the, the, the final refining of it into what you hold in your hands was around 1769. When that happened, what did they use? All of those different manuscripts, all of those different texts, all compiled together, preserved by God through the churches to give you your text. And we can trust it. 
biblical definition of scripture, a biblical definition of preservation, a biblical view of translation. Let me, let me finish with this. I just have a couple of things to say after I say this. A biblical view of translation. Translation is a Bible word. It's used three or four times. Okay? Translation is a Bible word. This is so fun. So remember, it's a Bible word. So how many of you think we ought to use a Bible definition? So the Bible says we're translated from death unto life. Which is better? Some of you don't know, I don't think. Okay, we're translated from death unto life. Which of those two is better? Life is better. Remember? Um, Enoch, the Bible says, he walked with God and was not. He was translated from this world to be with God. Which one's better? Every time you see the word translated in the Bible, it's from something lesser to something better. So if we're talking about using the Bible word translate, then is it possible that we have something better than that pile of Greek manuscripts that's laying around? Now, remember, that's extreme for some people. That statement is really extreme for some people. You know what the difference between us and them is? We actually believe we have a Bible. Did you know that... That the United Bible Society, or the, 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 the I'm sorry, I, I, I can't think of the name of it all of a sudden. So the, the society that is producing the modern Greek text, they're not done. Right now, they're in their 28th or 29th edition. They keep changing it. Every year or two, they'll put out a new one with a few changes in it. It's changing. The Bible is changing. How many of you believe the Bible is changing? The Bible says, thy word is settled in heaven forever. Forever thy word is settled in heaven, the Bible says. It is settled. And the good news is the reason it's settled is because God remembers what he wrote. And so when we start studying the Bible, the foundation for what we're doing is we have to believe in the authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, we have to believe that we have every word of God. We believe that. And then we compare those words and we use Bible words with Bible definitions. And all of a sudden, God starts opening his word to us. One of the problems in Bible colleges and seminaries, and I speak at them and I say this there. The problem with Bible colleges and seminaries is what they're teaching young men to do is not to have faith in this and trust this to read past this to the Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic, but they're not really reading the Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. They're reading the words, they're reading the definitions of the words that some Greek scholar, a lexicographer, has written in his lexicon. That lexicographer may not even be a saved man. And sometimes those lexicographers, those, those dictionary writers... They wanted to take their belief or unbelief and put it into their lexicon. One of the most famous Greek lexicons is still used. I've got it in my office. It's called Thayer's Lexicon. Does anyone have a Thayer's Lexicon? Has anyone ever seen that? It's printed by Baker, Baker Books in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And they, in the preface to the lexicon, how many of you have ever read the preface to a lexicon? 
Almost no one. The people who use them don't read that. I did. And in the preface to Baker's printing of Thayer's lexicon, it says this, a word of caution is necessary. Thayer was a Unitarian. Now, let me tell you what a Unitarian believes. Unitarian doesn't believe in the Trinity. Unitarian does not believe in eternal punishment. Unitarian does not believe that that there is ultimate punishment for sin. Okay? Now, how many of you know that's different than what we believe? How many of you believe that there's three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one? A word of caution is necessary. Thayer was a Unitarian, and his beliefs make it into his text both subtly and overtly. Here, young man, explain your Bible to people using Thayer's lexicon. How about I just believe God and believe God's words and I get the definitions. It's fine to go to a dictionary, but you find the definition in the dictionary that agrees with it in the context. The context gives you the definition, not the dictionary. It's so important that we understand the Bible that way. A biblical definition of scripture, preservation, translation. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13. These are the final comments that I mentioned I was going to get to. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing... Because when you received the word of God, which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that, what's it say? Believe. Believe. When we study the Bible, look at what it says. You received it not as the words of men or as the word of men. When we receive something as the word of men, there's a heart attitude. How do we receive the words of man? With the possibility of error. Right? Get a, get a science book from 50 years ago and see if it's still authoritative. And yet, remember, when those people were in school 50 years ago, they were told, don't believe your Bible, believe this science book. And yet now the scientists don't believe that science book. Right? That, that's, so that's not their authority. When you receive words as the words of men, you expect them, you receive them understanding the possibility of error. See, there's a heart attitude that allows the Bible to do its effectual work. And you must believe every word of God when you approach it. And so here's the final statement on believing the Bible or on studying the Bible. There's a heart attitude that's required for God to open his word to you. And we see that. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this cause also, thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. There's, there's, a, there's a requirement for God to... Unlock his word to you. You have to believe it. You have to believe it. And I'm just telling you, I listen to some of the greatest. I'll, I'll go on YouTube and I'll, I'll watch a presentation or I'll read a book by the greatest Bible scholars, the people that are considered the greatest Bible scholars in the world. 
And then I'll listen to James Knox. And James Knox is better. I'll listen to Lawrence Vance, and Lawrence Vance is better. I'll listen to Jeff Faggart, and Brother Jeff will open up that text, and he'll show me things in that text that that scholar never even touched. Why? They believe it. They believe it. That's what I'm talking about. Do these other folks, do they have truth? Absolutely. Do they have all the truth? They don't think so. I asked, uh, you know, how many of you have heard of Bob Jones University? Uh, Brother Figali mentioned it. That's where he and his wife met. That's where they went to school. I, years ago, I called the, the school there, and the head of the Bible department, the dean of the School of Theology, was a man named Thurman Wisdom. Is that just a tremendous name? Thurman Wisdom. And I asked him, he was so kind to me. Saved man. Really a godly man. Um, has given his life to teach the Bible. And I asked him this question, Dr. Wisdom, do you believe that you can hold God's word in your hands? He said, no. How many of you believe that you can hold God's word in your hands? See, that's the heart that's necessary to believe and open the word of God. So hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying you can't be saved if you use a different translation of the Bible. I'm not saying you can't love God or know God if you use a different translation of the Bible. What I'm saying is you don't have all the words of God. I had somebody tell me one time that uh, in in a very condescending way, they said, um, I know that you like the King James Bible and that and you use that you like it at your church but i have um a minor in bible from cedarville and i've studied this out and the nasb is a better translation than the king james and uh, he said no it's fine that you use the king james i just want you to know i'm not going to use it i said man i'm so glad we're at lunch i said i'm so glad that i get to talk to you i've wanted to ask somebody who studied this out some questions And I said, so do you use the NASB or the NASB update? He said, well, I'm I'm not sure. I said, well, when did you get it? He said, 1984. I said, okay, it's the NASB. The the, uh, New Testament came out in 1963. The Old Testament came out in 1965. The update was in 1996. So if you got yours in 1984, it's the NASB. So you studied this, so here's, here's my question for you. The NASB update has 6,973 fewer words than the NASB. So are you reading uninspired words or did they remove inspired words from your Bible? Um, I don't know. That's because you haven't studied it. Understand, we're not talking about the difference in languages. We're talking about a difference in editions of the Bible separated by 30 years. 6,973 differences? How many of you think God works that way? It's interesting, isn't it? This guy loves God? Wonderful. Godly man. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. But there's so much more to this subject than our enemies ever understand. 
I finally said to him, he came back to me another time, and I said, man, I've got 300 books in there on this subject. He said, go read 10 of them, and then let's have a conversation. We don't... Here's the thing. I've got three minutes to stay within my time. Here's our issue. How many of you believe that God inspired his words? Do you believe that? How many of you believe that God preserved his words? Because we believe that, we can hold them in our hands. I, I was at a Baptist Bible Fellowship meeting. There were some youth pastors there. One of them had a New Living Translation. I asked him to open it to, to Acts 8. I asked him if he liked it. He said he loves it. I had him read Acts 8.37 for me, which, and it's not there. You know, he did one of these things. It's not there, and that's where uh, Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch said, Eunuch says, here's water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And here's what's removed. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. That's not in that Bible. It's out. It's out. And here's what I said to these guys. Had a long conversation. There was a guy, he had his doctorate from Dallas Theological Seminary. He had graduated from Southern Seminary with his master's. I'll look to him and he's going to answer it. His name was Andy. And he said, well, aren't those disputed? Passages? I said, disputed by who? And he said, Bible scholars. I said, what's a scholar? Well, you know, somebody who's studied. So what's the definition of a scholar? He said, I don't know. I suppose you're going to tell me. I said, sure, I'm happy to. A scholar is one who's mastered their subject. Who has mastered the scriptures? So again, who are these people that are disputing? Well, you know, it's Dr. So-and-so, and, -so and he, he's our, my Greek teacher. And he, I said, well, I studied Greek, and all, what do, that doesn't matter. What are we talking about? What's our authority? And finally, I said to these guys, I said, guys, look, if you don't like the King James Bible, that's fine. But you better have an authority. Whatever Bible you are teaching, and these were youth directors, whatever Bible you're teaching those kids, you're telling them you believe it. You'd better believe it. Amen? What are we talking about? Integrity. We're talking about honesty. Because remember, when someone says, I believe that the Bible was inspired in the original autographs, if that's your statement on the scriptures, what you're saying is, I believe in nothing. Because those autographs, they're gone. They withered away. They were written on papyrus. Papyrus is just grass that grows along the side of the river. But in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the Bible says, The grass withereth and the flower fadeth. The word of our God shall stand forever. I just believe it. It's by faith. It's by faith. I told you this was going to be disjointed. But please get this. We come to the Bible by faith. By faith. You see, we all place our faith somewhere. Many people in Christianity, they place their faith in those original autographs that no longer exist. That's not a very faithful position. There are others that their faith is in the Greek text that they hold. So you have the critical text, the USB text, that's what I couldn't remember, and then the Trinitarian Bible Society uh, Greek text, which is the Textus Receptus. So there are some people that hold that Textus Receptus. That's their authority. That's their authority until you tell them there are six of them. There are six different Textus Receptuses. 
where do you place your faith? See, we choose to believe that God worked through men to give us his words that we can read, that we can study, that we can compare, that we can believe. We believe every one of them. That's what we say. That's what we do. Amen? So now, here's how this study is going to work. We're going to have handouts. You're going to be able to learn practical tools on how to understand the Bible. This was a more philosophical foundation for what we're doing. If you don't believe it, then God's not going to open it up to you. Right? A lost person could do that. See, the Bible says that the the things of God, they're foolishness to the natural man. They can't understand the things of the Spirit of God. We can. Amen? And it starts by believing it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. And Lord, I know that this was a, a scattered presentation of information tonight. But Lord, I hope the heartbeat of it is this. We love you.